Amen. Amen. I am being tremendously blessed sharing these things because I'm having to walk them out as well and live them. Would you please do me one more favor and let's welcome all of our locations live and alive. You guys are awesome. We love you so much. I really appreciate the feedback that we're receiving over these teachings. There was a lady just in the last service that literally was thanking me and thanking God that her blood pressure had gone down and that her sugar level even had gone down, that she could literally feel a difference in her body just through operating in the Word of God. That's good. Amen? Because being overloaded, which opens the door for fear and worry and anxiety and stress, it literally does affect your health. It can affect your mental processes and things of that nature. And so this is important that we learn how to unload in a world where it's easy to get overloaded. Just everyday life and the ebb and flow of everyday life can be so daunting, trying to make a living, trying to keep food on the table, clothes on your back, a roof over your head. Even those things that are just a part of life, if not managed well, can cause you to be overloaded. So we're looking at how do we unload and then specifically now reload with the right things in our lives so that in the day of trouble, our hearts are not overcharged, overloaded, and we are then overtaken. And so that's where we are now in the teachings. And we're looking at four things, and we've kind of struggled getting through the first three. And so I need to hurry here, but there are some things I want to review. And that is, number one, if you're going to keep from being overloaded... And you're going to learn how to unload throughout your life and walk with God. You have to learn to take heed to yourselves. Take heed to yourselves. Broken focus causes a lot of stress in people's lives. It's so easy to get your eyes off of God, listen, and on everybody else. And you're wondering, why are they acting that way instead of you and I acting the right way? Why'd they do that? I don't know. Why don't we do the right thing? Well, they're just not walking in love. And there isn't anything you can do about other people not walking in love, but you and I can walk in love. And we stress out, again, taking things into our heart that God didn't call us to take in. You cannot work out your spouse's salvation. Amen. You have to learn to give them to, to God. And I'm not talking about now if your spouse is open for ministry and you're communicating and helping one another. I'm talking about condemning your spouse. I'm talking about worrying about your spouse. I'm talking about manipulating your spouse. We've been watching a couple of the grandkids this weekend, and my grandson was, was talking to Sue, and I overheard him say to her that, Mama, you look really good for how long you've been on this earth. <laughs> Who am I to try to correct someone that's been around since the dinosaurs, Amen. I need to give Sue to God, and I don't need to worry about Sue. I need to love Sue and serve Sue. Many of you are stressed out over your children. You've raised them, and you've taught them the things of God, but they're not following after God, and so you're all stressed out about what they're not doing, about what you wish they would do. You have to give them to God. You're not responsible to bear the burden of how they're living or what they're doing or what you wish they were doing, and many people are stressed out, overloaded, because they're worried about their children and trying to work their children's salvation out. And on and on, I could go with family again, friends. We just need to love people and we need to serve people and we need to do the right thing. And we need to guard our hearts and garden our hearts and make sure that we are working out our own salvation with fear and trembling before, before God. Amen? I really appreciate that, but... I don't want to be mean about this. I don't want to be critical or unkind in any way, but it still amazes me how people miss this rhythm of grace in their life. And it must be easy to get your eyes on everybody else instead of keeping your eyes on the Lord and on your own heart. So let me encourage you that number one is number one, take heed to yourselves. And we've given you a lot of scriptures on that. Number two, we all need to resign from a Messiah complex. We cannot be God in other people's lives. 
we have to let God be God, and God has a responsibility for people that only God can carry, and we have a responsibility to simply trust God, to believe God, not be God. Even pastors mess up in this. I have to guard my heart in this. I cannot make you do the right thing. I can't make you pay attention. I can't make you obey God. I can't manipulate you any more than I can, again, sue or my children. And so I have to make sure that I let God be God in your life and that I just love you and serve you in the things of God. And you have to live like that because there's a temptation to take responsibility for people's lives again in areas that you don't have a responsibility in. You are responsible to receive the word of God. I'm responsible just to bring you the word of God. You're responsible to take authority and act on your faith and believe for the promises of God, not me. And so we all have to resign from a Messiah complex. And then number three, and here's where we ran out of time, we have to learn to cast our care upon God. We get overloaded because we don't know how to unload. We take this on and take this problem on and this problem on and this worry and this anxiety, and we don't learn how to cast our care upon the Lord. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, Peter deals with how that we need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that in due season he will exalt us. And then he says, casting all your care upon God, for he cares for you. I believe the second half of that verse is how I made the transition of really casting my care upon God. Once I begin to see how much he cares for me and about me, I was able then to trust him with my cares. I was able to unload my cares, my problems, my concerns even on the Lord because I know he cares for me and I know he cares about me. Now within that, and that rhythm of grace in your life, I said you need some check stations in your life because I don't care how much you know of the Lord, I don't care how long you've served the Lord, you're going to face some things. I still face things that it perplexes me that this is bothering me, that I can't get this out of my heart. Something's bothering me. Somebody did something to me. Somebody didn't do what they promised me they would do, or on and on I can go with things we all face, and it bothers you. And you know you need to get rid of it. You know you need to cast it off on the Lord, but if you're honest with God and honest with yourself, you go to bed and you're still worrying about it. And so I have developed check stations in my life to help me guard my heart. And I began to share those with you in our last session, and number one for me is Sue, is Sue. I don't dump all of my problems on Sue either. And I don't download even all my worries or cares or issues the ministry's going through on Sue. No, I dump them on God. I cast my care upon God. And if I can't deal with something, I have a partner in the grace of life. I have Sue and we are heirs together of the grace of life. And so I go to her. She's my first check station. If something kept me up that night, if I can't get it off, or I can't get it out of my heart, then I go to Sue, and she prays with me, and she helps me process. But what if, I, what if I can't deal with it the rest of that day? What if it keeps me up another night? Then I have governing elders in my life. I have people committed unto me and me unto them. And that's a part of my small group. That's a part of my, my if you will, check station that I not only have governing elders, I have ruling elders, I have grace elders, and then if they can't help me through something, I have members of this body that help me. That if I'm struggling with something, especially if it's like finances or another area where I know someone who is successful in that area, I can humble myself and I can go to them and say, hey, this is stressing, this is stressing me out. Listen to me, dear ones. We all need to have relationships that are authentic and honest and, and, and transparent, transparent, because you can't be honest with everybody about everything all the time in your life. Now, I know that's a shocker to people. I don't get up here and totally strip before you. Well, that wouldn't be cool, and that's not a good imagery as I even explain this. But I guarantee you people would quit coming if every service I dumped on you and I just talked about my bad week and all of my problems. 
They would have no respect for me, and that's not what we're here for. But I have to have people in my life, a small group of people. We call them life groups. And the reason we encourage everyone, we would never condemn you. We don't want to manipulate you. And we're not going to force you into a life group, but we're trying to get a concept over to everybody that we all need to be a part of a small group where we can be honest, where we can be transparent, where if we get in a bind and something's getting in our heart, we got somebody we can talk to to get this out before it messes up our lives. It messes up our lives. Amen. Thank you. That's, that's not bad. That's a third of you. I'm impressed, and I appreciate it so much because many of you are overloaded because you don't have any authentic relationships. You don't have any accountability in your life that's loving accountability, and that's a part of these check stations. Again, there are people that talk about our church and say, well, I'm not going to be coming anymore, Pastor. The church is just too big. I want to go to a small church where everybody knows me. No, you don't. You're lying. I want to go to a small church where everybody knows my business. No, you don't. Amen. And yes, in a big church, a large church, you can hide, but you don't have to. We can have the best of both worlds. We can be a large church that's having a large impact where there is opportunities for service, where there's opportunity for human resources to minister to everybody and to meet many, many needs. At the same time, break into small groups, break into life groups where you do have a group of which they do know your name and you can be transparent with safety and security in. We all need that in our lives. I need it in my life. You need it in your, in your life. And I can't tell how many people have quit our church because, quote, unquote, it's too big. Pastor, I'm going to go to a small church. I want to go to a small church. And then they're shocked when I pray for them because I lay hands on them and I sow them because I want to bless them and I want you to be blessed. And so I pray something like this. Father, I sow these people gratefully and I bless them. And I pray, oh God, that the church they go to does not grow. Oh God, do not let it grow. Don't let it be a church of impact. Don't let it get big or my brothers and sisters will be left behind. So don't get upset at me when I pray the church stays small to meet your need. Now, why don't we be a big church but get in small groups where we can all get our needs met by the power of God? Hallelujah. Amen. We all need a small group, but that doesn't mean we have to be a small church. We can be a huge church that is having a mega major impact and all of us be in a small group where we are secure, we do have intimacy, and we do have people that can help us. Finances is what pulls most pastors down, and it either messes them up personally or even in their ministry. And I just made a commitment years ago to never beat you or condemn you or even beg. And so finances is something I had to set in order, and I had to have people in my life to help me not to worry about, not to get anxious over. And there's a man in the body... Most of you, probably all of you would know this particular man. He's not even in an eldership role. And early in the ministry, I would feel the pressure of the finances. And again, Sue and I lived on $50 a week for the first six years of our marriage with two kids. And listen, we've never been laid on a bill. Never been laid on a bill. And the church has never been laid on a bill. So I take it serious is the point. I'm not boasting in that. I'm saying we need to be people of integrity in our personal lives and in our ministerial lives. And finances can mess you, mess you up. So I would feel the pressure of the finances and I would humble myself to this brother and he's very successful. And I'd go to him and, and, and tell him all I'm going through and what am I going to do and how am I going to deal with this? And he would just smile at me and say, Dwayne, it's only a matter of a couple of more zeros. See, y'all don't even know what that means. What do you mean it's only the matter of a couple of more zeros? Can you at least divide the two zeros where I can deal with the first zero first? Because see, in ministry, there's times you need $100, times you need $1,000, times you need 100000 and times you may need a million. And he believes it's just zeros. How many of you know for a guy coming out of poverty like me, it ain't just zeros? This is keeping me up at night. 
But yet a guy like that could talk to me. He could walk me off the cliff and help me process it. And before it was over with, it's like, yeah, just a matter of zeros, praise God. (laughs) And it has been just a matter of a few more zeros. Every time God moves, every time God works, it's just a few more zeros. But you know, without him in my life, that could have ruined me. That could have made me one of these preachers that get up every service and beat you or condemn. You see what I'm saying? You don't see what I'm saying. All right, there's other examples I'll give you later. All right, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9 is where we ran out of time. Let's read this together. Paul says that we need to always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. So that's a commandment. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Now, that's where your life is going to go, dear ones. I don't care where you're at with your walk with God. You're either going to worry about everything and, or you're going to pray about everything. And if you don't know how to pray and you don't pray, you will worry about everything. So you have to learn how to pray. You have to learn how to cast your care upon the Lord. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. Man, I want that in my life. I want that for every one of you, that you have a peace that's beyond comprehension or understanding. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. So he gave us like four things that is a rhythm of grace in your life. It's not legalism. We need to be a people of good cheer. We need to learn how to rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. We need to know how to quit worrying. We need to know how to pray. And then we need to give thanks. And then he gives us final instructions. He says, and now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts. Fix your thoughts. Set your thoughts. Harness your mind. Realign your thinking. Fix your thoughts on what is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me. I love that. I'm not preaching these things to you out of a book. I'm not preaching out of somebody else's outlines. I'm telling you this is how I live every day of my life and a rhythm of grace that has kept me from being overloaded no matter what's going on in my life or even what God is doing in my life. You learn to receive from me, he says. Everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. So... It's like we believe it. We understand it. No one basically disagrees with anything I've taught you over the past few weeks, but we forget to practice it. We forget it's not a matter of just agreeing with it. It's not a matter of, I believe that preacher. It is a matter of you consciously developing a discipline in your rhythm of grace where you're learning what it means to rejoice, what it means not to worry, what it means to cast that care upon God, for he cares for you. We have to practice this in our everyday lives. So let's walk through all of these. Rejoice. What does that mean? Because I want to obey God in this. And I had to find this out for myself, because does rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, mean that I have to go through my entire day jumping up and down, shouting and hollering, speaking in tongues at the top of my lungs, going through Walmart like a crazy Some of you are looking at me like, you mean I don't go through Walmart like that? What does it mean? Saints, when we come together, remember, we are the family of God, and we are celebrating the resurrection as a body. It is okay to get demonstrative here. It's not only okay, it's recommended. It's okay to get your body involved. It's okay to get your mind involved. As a matter of fact, the worship service, I love you. Everybody say, I love Brother Dwayne. I love you too, but many of you miss the opportunity presented to you every service we have. We're not just filling up some some schedule. 
with praise and worship. No, we are collectively, listen, rejoicing. We're collectively setting our mind on God. We're collectively and corporately casting our care upon him. We're collectively and corporately saying, thank you, God. Thank you, God. I'm sanctifying this week. I'm setting it aside, and I'm pushing the restart button. Last week is gone. You were good to me. I had some issues. I'm giving them back to you, and I'm going to have a good week in Jesus' name. You, you access God during that time. Father, my marriage is a bummer, but I'm going to have a good week this week. And things are going to be good because I can't change my mate, but I'm going to change. I can't change my kids, but I'm going to change. I'll come to this monitor. You're doing, you're doing much better. No, this word here, rejoice, means calmly happy. Calmly happy. I, I don't have to be demonstrative in my, my daily walk. But I need to have that calm happiness about my life. I love this. In the Greek, it really means well off. To rejoice is to believe you're, you're really well off. I don't care what you're, don't miss me. When I say I don't care what you're going through, I'm not saying I'm insensitive. I'm saying, A, I'm not going to take the care. I'm going to help you cast the care on God. But when I say I don't care what you're going through, I'm talking about regardless of what you're going through, how you feel, how it looks, in Jesus, you're still well off, amen? God's going to work it together for your good. God's not going to allow you to be tempted above what you are able. We've seen God is going to make a way of escape, and he literally becomes that way of escape as we seek him with all of our hearts now. And so this rejoicing is this calm happiness. Then he says and commands us, do not worry. That is a commandment of God. That yes, we have a choice technically, because God never takes away your free will. But if Jesus is Lord of your life, and you believe the word of God, and I do, then I really don't have a choice. In John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe in me also. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am you may be also. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. That's a choice. No one taught me that. I thought I either have a troubled heart or I don't. There's nothing I am in control concerning having or not having a troubled heart. Now, I can deal with a troubled heart, but I, I don't get a choice whether I have one or not. Jesus said, I do have a choice. He said, let not your heart be troubled. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, these things have I spoken unto you, that you may have peace. I love that. In other words, what God says to you brings you peace. That's why your personal relationship with God and fellowship with God, praying or talking to God, is a part of what brings you that peace that passes all understanding. These things that I've spoken unto you, I've said them that you might have peace. In this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. For I've overcome the world. That's a commandment. It must have nothing to do with my feelings because how many of you know if you're going through tribulation, you don't feel good? But you can choose to be of good cheer because you know God is with you. You know God is for you. You know God is going to work it together for your good. You know that, and I won't go off on my diatribe, of the blessings of God in your life. I was reading years ago out of Acts where Paul was brought before King Agrippa and King Agrippa basically looked at the Apostle Paul and says, how are you doing? And, and Paul says, I think myself happy. <laughs> I think myself happy? How can I go to church most of my life and nobody tell me I can choose to be happy or be unhappy and that I'm in control if I'm happy, not everybody else and not everything else going on in my life. I can choose to be happy. I don't believe most people believe that. And yet Paul said, I just think myself happy. And he was in chains and he was imprisoned and things were not going well in the natural. And he said, I just choose to be happy. I'm happy. Why? Jesus is Lord. Why? He's going to turn this around. Why? I'm not led by my emotions. I'm not led by my circumstances. I really am led by the Spirit of God and by faith and by faith. And you can be as well. I can be as well. I hear people all the time saying, well, I just got up on the wrong side of the bed. Well, figure out what the wrong side is and park it up against the wall and get up on the right side. Amen? 
You can get up on the right side of the bed every day of your life. You can choose to be happy. But the truth is we choose to have breakdowns. We choose to have these fall-aparts. And I know that sounds mean to somebody that feels like they don't have a choice. But I've come home before. I'm I'm being honest with you. I've come home before and I've looked at Sue and said, I am having a nervous breakdown and you are not going to stop me. I worked hard for this. I deserve it. (laughs) Think about it. You've had those days. You really want to have a fit. You want to give everybody a piece of your mind. (laughs) Carnal mind. (laughs) Amen. And you have to choose to be happy. You have to choose to think on God. You have to choose to meditate, set your mind, fix your thoughts back on God and that's when you begin to see the peace of God that passes all understanding begin to be be released. He said, pray. He must be talking about praying in faith, believing you receive, because the next thing he said is give thanks. If you really pray in faith, you give God your, your need, you give God your problem, you start thanking him now. That's the action of faith. Faith without works is dead. And one of the ways we, we activate faith, faith is voice activated and faith has to have action. And one of the greatest actions of faith is thank you, God. Thank you that you are with me. I don't feel good about this. I don't feel right about it. But I do thank you that you are with me. And then I begin to set my mind. I begin to fix my mind on these things that he talked about. Eight different things. And they all point to God's word, both written and living. You start thinking about what's true. When somebody said they don't love me, so I must not be lovable. No, God loves you. Think on the truth that God loves you. And I could go on and on with examples. And I've had to do this in my own, my own personal life, in my ministerial life, with rejection and persecution and opposition, where I've had to just get a half a day before God or a whole day. I've, I've been known to get away and ask just to get away and be by myself all day long. And all I'll meditate on is how much God loves me. Because that's the truth. That's honest. That's a good report. That's virtuous. That's worthy of praise. So when I say think on God, most people draw a blank. And so I'm breaking it down for you. What do I mean think on God? I'm talking about, again, there's like three or four main things in my life that if not daily, weekly, I think about. Again, it's his love for me. Many times when we're overloaded and we're going through a a problem, we question God's love for us. And so I have to focus my mind on the cross and on the goodness of God, on the mercy of God, on the forgiveness of God. There are two things personally that can get me down. And Sue's learned them, I've learned them, and we guard, we guard, we guard these. One is if I can't whip something in a couple of days, worry, I really get messed up because now I'm worried about me worrying. I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with me. I'm messed up. Why am I worrying? I know better. I know the rhythms of of your grace. And so if I worry for a couple of days about something, now I'm worried about worrying. Why am I worrying? Why can't I get this off of me? And so I have to have Sue to help me me with that. The second thing is, is if and when I sin. If and when I sin... It's not the sin that overloads me. Listen to me, dear ones. Sin will overload you. Sin will destroy your heart. It'll destroy your life. And that's why we have this great forgiveness. That's why we have this advocate that we can confess our sins to. And we can, we can mess up, but then fess up. Not live in it. Not, not, not allow it to destroy us. But see, that's not what gets most Christians. Some Christians do just fall into sin and embrace it. I can count those on one hand that I've worked with in my life. Most of us, our problem isn't the sin. We sin. We do something really bad even. We make a mistake. We fall off into something really bad. And what happens is we repent of it, but the condemnation, the guilt, the shame, and the embarrassment overload us. Thank you. Because most people quit church not because of sin in their life, but because of the guilt, the shame, the embarrassment. Many of us, our kids will go awry, and the embarrassment of that, 
causes us to back up from God. Many times our spouse will just fall off the cliff and we're embarrassed to come to church because we failed in our marriage or we failed with our kids or we, we fail in a moral, a moral issue. And so because we haven't learned how to receive our forgiveness and deal with guilt and condemnation, we think everybody else is, is condemning us too for our sins. And it overloads us. And so we wind up quitting church. We wind up seeking, quit, we quit seeking God. We have to learn, saints, to receive our forgiveness. But listen, we got to learn to forgive each other. All of us fail. All of us fall. Some of us fall and fail in areas that are seen. Others of us fail and fall in areas unseen. Some of us fall and fail because of the weakness of our flesh. And it's not as embarrassing as other things we fall and fail, fail in that are embarrassing. And we have to learn to, to process that properly as a family, as a, as a church. I mean, you may, have, you may have fallen off the wagon last night, and you barely made it to church today, and you feel bad because you got drunk last night. Others of you, you may have gotten with a, an old friend and friends, and you wound up smoking something that's only legal in Colorado. Amen. And it's not that you're going to celebrate it now, and it's not that you're going to boast about it. You, you feel, you've repented. You've, you've even ted, said to God, I'm sorry, but you feel bad because you know other people know about it. See, all of my sins that I fall short in, I'm kind of sad about it when I did it and trying to get out of it. Those of you that smoked a joint or got drunk, at least you were happy for a season. You enjoyed your sin a little bit more than I did mine. But how many of you know the guilt's the same? The embarrassment's the same. What people think feels the same. And it can literally overload you. Your heart can get overloaded thinking everybody's condemning you. Everybody's judging you. We've got to get past that individually, and we've got to get past that as a church. We're here to help each other. Amen? I need help. <laughs> I struggle with stuff. Most of my stuff is you. And I need help. Because I love you so much, and God loves us so much, and we need to learn to love each other through stuff, through stuff. So you got to learn to get that out of your heart, that guilt, that condemnation. Yeah, but I've done this 25 times. Are you repentive of it? Yes, it's in the blood. It's over. It never happened. God's not holding it over you. We're not holding it over you. Let's go forward. We've got to learn that. And that comes from meditating on God's love, his mercy, his forgiveness, and his blessings in our life. We've seen that the heart can get drunk, intoxicated on problems. If you sit around and meditate on your problem all day long, it's poison. It's poison to your soul and it's poison to your body. If you sit around and think about how bad things might turn out with worry and anxiety, it's poison. It's like getting drunk, we've seen, and drunk of heart. Listen to me, dear ones. It's fixing your mind on God and meditating on God's love for you, God's forgiveness, God's mercy, God's blessings, God's promises that detoxes your heart. I wish I could get this over. I, I don't understand it fully. But we live in a dark world. We live in a fallen world. We live in, in a lot of poison that's all around us. And it affects our soul subliminally. Just going through your everyday life, you're exposed to so many things that are dark and evil, and that gets in your soul, and it's like, it's like poison in your soul. The only thing that you can be detoxed with is the Word of God, the presence of God, God Himself. And when you meditate on God, when you set your mind, you fix your thoughts on God, that's a detoxing process. It's like a a cleansing of your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions. And you and only you can develop these rhythms of grace in your life where you know how to do that. It's different for everybody. The principle is the same, that we all need to learn those four things out of Philippians there, but how we do it, when we do it, is different for all of us. We all need to learn where's our secret place. Where's our secret place where we can get still, get quiet, and say, God, Man, I'm being inundated here with things and cleanse the soul with meditating on the Word of God. When the mind is set on God, it releases kingdom blessings in our lives. That leads me to number four, 
Number one, take heed to yourself. Number two, you need to resign from a Messiah complex. Number three, you cast your care upon God. That's all unloading. Now, how you reload the heart, how you recalibrate the heart is by seeking the kingdom of God first. And this is a kingdom principle like the other three. It's what cleanses the heart, seeking the kingdom of God. It's what recalibrates your thinking and your thought processes. And again, this is something you're practicing and you're developing every day of your, of your life. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, that chapter deals with what people worry about. And I don't know if we'll come back to that, but five times in chapter 6, Jesus said, take no thought for your life, take no thought for your clothes, take no thought what you're going to eat. Five times he said, take no thought. And if you look it up in any other translation, it says, do not worry, do not worry, do not worry. Yet, those are the things that dominate worry in most people's lives. And so you have to learn to take no thought, but take God thoughts. And that's what meditation is. When I say meditation, it throws people into a little bit of a kink. It's like people have all kinds of thoughts. As soon as I say, we, we need to learn to meditate on the Lord. And directly, somebody will rise to the top and say, well, he's talking about some Middle Eastern philosophy. You know, that transcendental meditation and uh, something out of the Middle East. And I never have understood that one. Y'all do know your Bible came out of the Middle East, right? You do know Jesus came out of the Middle East, right? I hate to break that news to you. He was not blue eyes and blonde hair. Okay, some of you didn't know that. All right, I set that straight. Process that. Secondly, when I talk about meditation, I'm not talking about the psychobabble of the world when they talk about meditation. I'm not talking about becoming one with God. I'm not talking about mm, and finding my karma. I'm not talking about what is only a physical exercise by the positioning of your body. I'm not talking about all that kind of stuff. Why would I meditate to become one with God when Jesus died on the cross, was raised from the dead, and my spirit's one with him? I'm already united to God. I'm not meditating to get to God. I'm not meditating to become one with God. I'm meditating to set my mind on things above so that the God that's on the inside of me can begin to flow through me. If I say meditation, people back up a little bit and think of Christian science. I'm not talking about Christian science. I'm talking about good Christian sense. Oh, I know what he's talking about, that mind over matter stuff. No, I'm talking about your mind matters. And then if you don't set it on God, the devil will set it on evil. If you don't set it on God, it will get set on something that won't be God. And so we have to practice this in our lives. I'm just talking about being real with God. I'm talking about a lifestyle in which you're just thinking about God's promises throughout your day and that you're countering these negative thoughts with God's thoughts. You're countering, okay, I got a problem, but God is my answer, and so I'm going to think on God. That's what I'm, I'm talking about. So Jesus said to seek the kingdom first, and so we need to know what the kingdom is then if we're going to seek it first. Overload comes from two things, at least from my perspective of my own personal life, there were two things that got out of whack that caused overload in my life in the natural. And one of them was poor time management, poor time management, and then poor life management or my priorities. I struggled early in the ministry with this thing of time management. And I didn't know and I wasn't taught how to manage my time. And your time, dear ones, is your most valuable commodity. There is nothing more precious in your life than your time because you have a limited amount of it and you need to spend it wisely. And we all have the same 24-hour day. Can I get a witness on that? And yet, don't we all know people that in one day they accomplish 10 more or 10 times more things than we do? With less time, I met friends finally that they were working 30 or 40 hours and, and, and productive. I was working 80 hours and wasn't productive. 
I didn't have good time management skills. I didn't know how to use my time wisely. And it was creating overload. And what happens is when your time gets out of whack, you start unloading, unfortunately, the wrong things in your life. The second thing that I struggled with was life skill management, priorities in my life, keeping my priorities right. I didn't even know what my priorities were supposed to be for years, much less are they out of order. And so many times when your time is, is not managed right, now the priorities in your life get all mixed up and you don't realize you get more overloaded and more overloaded and you begin to crash and burn. When we get overloaded, we can tend to unload the wrong things. Let me give you two quick examples. When your time gets out of, out of whack and, and you're working 80 hours a week, you have other hobbies and things that, that are important to you and it, it, it's, out of, it's out of whack. What is the first thing people start unloading when their time is a part of the overload? They quit church. They actually look at their life and say, I'm too busy to go to church now. I'm too busy to read my Bible. I'm too busy to pray. Well, how many of you know, if you're too busy to go to church, you're too busy to pray, you're too busy to read your Bible, you're just plain old too busy. Amen. Come on. Just fake, fake this one with me. Yeah, they unload going to church. I can't tell how many people I've gone to. Where have you been? I got problems, preacher, or I got issues over here, and I got things I got to do over there. And the first thing you did in unloading, because you're overloaded, is you gave up church. You gave up reading your Bible, et cetera, et cetera. When people get into a financial crunch, what's the first thing they start unloading? Tithing, giving, sowing. And the truth of the matter is, till we learn to tithe and give and sow in faith, we're never going to fix our financial issues. Amen. Well, you didn't do as good as the other groups, but I appreciate the welfare clap. I could share more things, but I think I'm happy. And, and I want to stay happy. And so I'm trying to give you some issues. What happens when you get overloaded many times and you feel like your ship is sinking, you start unloading the wrong things. You need to learn to unload the right things. You need to learn to unload your problem. You need to unload your worries. You need to unload your cares not the things of God in your life because you have to seek ye first the kingdom of God if all these other things are going to be added unto you. Amen. We've worked hard not to condemn anybody for not coming to church. But the Bible does say, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, as you see the day approaching. We need to learn the power of assembling. We need to learn the power of the kingdom and seeking it. Well, in Romans chapter 14, verses 13 through 22, Paul is dealing with issues of conscience and issues of custom and issues of people that had been under the law and were making that transition under grace. And I tell you, this is something God's doing in my life right now that's phenomenal to me. I don't know if you understand how hard it is to transition a New Testament church from law to grace much less having to transition the Hebrew people from being under the law for hundreds of years into the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've been taught your whole life that certain meats are forbidden to eat and not kosher, and then all of a sudden those meats are sanctified by grace and they were types and shadows just showing clean and unclean, separation, light from dark, good from evil. God has painted so many pictures in the Old Testament of good and evil, right and wrong, that now we come over into the New Testament and all those animals and eating them is okay, you would struggle with that. Amen. Worshiping on Sunday would be real tough on you. I can't get some of you to change seats. <laughs> what if we change day we worship when you've been taught the Sabbath your whole life and that that is a day of worship? And so all of these issues... They were having to work through them. And many things were issues of conscience, issues of custom. Some things in the kingdom of God, they're the same for all of us. God's given us a moral code in the New Testament of certain things, and they're the same for all of us. But other things, the Holy Spirit's working in people's lives, and it's a matter of conscience for them or custom for them. And we have to learn to deal with that. And so I'm, I'm trying to close here, and this is difficult to teach in just five minutes, but 
Let us not therefore judge one another anymore. He's talking about critical, judgmental, nitpicking. He says, but judge this. So there is a place of judgment. Here's where we judge. That no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and I'm persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. If you think eating a certain kind of meat is wrong, to you it'd be wrong to eat it. But just because it's wrong to you because of your conscience and the way you were brought up, it doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong for me. And I can't impose my conscience on you, and you can't impose your conscience on me. If you believe Saturday's the only day to worship on, then you need to worship on that day, but you can't condemn me for worshiping on Sunday, and I don't condemn you for worshiping on Saturday. We're all worshiping the same Lord. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if your brother be grieved with thy meat... Now walkest thou not charitably or in God's love. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. In other words, if I knew that your conscience bothered you to eat bacon and I took you out to eat, I wouldn't purposely order bacon and eat it in front of you. Because I love you and I don't want to create a problem for you. But guess what? When I go home, I'm having a bacon and tomato sandwich. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So here he tells us what the kingdom of God is, where the kingdom of God is. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherein one may edify another. We should always be trying to keep peace among us and let's encourage one another is what he's saying. For meat destroyeth not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. So he's talking about matters of conscience. He's talking about matters of custom. He's talking about personal convictions about things. He's not talking about general things God's dealt with in a moral code. But he is talking about the Holy Spirit working in your life and, and the freedom we have now in Christ, in Christ. I played tennis in college. I, I don't have time now to go into the whole story. But God spoke to me audibly and said that a tennis racket was a God to me. It was idolatry and told me to put it down. I quit in my senior year of college, gave up my scholarship. I walked away from the racket, and I didn't touch a tennis racket for right at 20 years. Why? For me, it was idolatry. For me, it had become the source of my esteem. It had become the source of my destiny. Everything I was was attached to that instead of attached to God and Him being my source. Now, how foolish would it have been for me, though, to get in the ministry now and, and look at all of you and say, those of you that are playing tennis, you're an idolater, and you are evil, and you need to put that tennis racket down, and if you Pick it up, you are sinning. <laughs> Y'all didn't get that? It's not even a sin now for me to pick it up. I'd like to start playing more again because of the health issues that would be associated with it, and I enjoy it. It wouldn't be a God to me now. It was a matter of conscience for me then and had become something to me that it's not to you, and so to me it would have been sin for me to have gone onto that tennis court the next day. Now, I, I could give many illustrations, but you need to work this out, and you need to figure this out. What is God saying to you? And you can't impose personal convictions on other people. If you believe my hair is long, keep it to yourself. I am not going to get a Pee Wee Herman haircut. It's just not going to happen. Well, I think his hair is long, and long hair is a sin. Well, that, first of all, that's not even in the Bible. It, it says long hair is a shame. It didn't say it was a sin. 
They can't even get that right. Number two, I don't have long hair. I have big ears. And I'm not going to expose them to the world. But see, I don't, I don't impose my conviction about hairdo on you. You can't impose your conviction about hairdo on me. Amen. All right, let's end with this. The kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? If I'm going to seek it first, what is it? Paul said the kingdom of God is not in meat or drink. It is in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. What is the kingdom of God? God's righteousness in your life, God's peace in your life, and God's joy in your life. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is not in heaven. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is in the Holy Ghost. The kingdom of God is not in meat or drink, but in righteousness, peace, joy. In where? The Holy Ghost. So the kingdom of God is in the Holy Ghost. Where's the Holy Ghost? The Holy Ghost is in you. So where's the kingdom? It doesn't come with observation. It doesn't come here or there. The kingdom of God, Jesus said, is within us. So what's on the inside of your spirit? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. How do I get it from my spirit into my life? I realign my thoughts and set them on God. And once the mind agrees with the spirit, once my will agrees with my spirit, once my thoughts align with my spirit, that is like a gate that opens up my spirit and what's in my spirit to begin to flow into all of my life. Amen. Amen. Praise God. That's awesome. That is awesome. And we're going to talk about that in our next session. Were you blessed? Hallelujah. I love you so much. Father, I thank you for the kingdom of God. It is, it is righteousness by faith, and that righteousness now leads us to do what is right, to live a life that brings you glory. We don't do what's right to be made right. That's not the kingdom. The kingdom that's in the Holy Spirit, that's on the inside of me, has made us righteous, and now we allow that spirit to lead us into paths of righteousness. Thank you for a peace that passes all understanding. It's in my spirit, and I pray, oh God, that it be released into my soul, my mind, my will, my emotions, that peace would be released into my emotions as I set my thoughts on you. And I thank you for the joy of the Lord. It is our strength. It is in our spirit when we don't feel like it, when we don't sense it. We're still a people of joy because of the kingdom that's in us. And as we align our thoughts, set our minds on things above, not on things below, I think that that life force of the kingdom flows through our souls into our lives. I give you the praise and glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Praise God.